Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and I'm delighted, as I am always delighted, to be joined by Anthony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our episode on the Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. something about the title that I can never get quite right and I just have end up having to call it like final girl because I I don't know if it's wait if it's the I think it's group and support that I keep wanting to put into different orders but it's it's the title the book needs right but it's just it's really hard for me to say it correctly every time <laughs> the title the book needs but a mouthful that you care not for yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> slash I just can't remember it. So somewhere in between, it just doesn't fit right in my mouth. And maybe I just need to start exercising my little membrane muscles a little bit more. (laughs) Uh, So we try every so often to talk about books because both Anthony and I are are readers and Mm -hmm. horror fiction is, is interesting. It really is. It's a whole separate thing than its counterpart in in film. Film is going through a very horror films right now are going through a very different moment than what's going on in horror books. Yes. Uh, Similar, and I guess that they're both largely linked to trauma, but what they're exploring and how they're doing it are vastly different. And and there are things happening in in horror fiction that we haven't quite been able to fully get to in terms of of horror film, primarily in terms of, of our creators, right? We are experiencing, in part due to um, self-publishing options and smaller presses, but also just, I think, more options, right? We, we have a more diverse, I think, horror writer community than we do, certainly, the big producers and directors that are, like, making the big budget films. We have plenty of, of low-budget, um, I think, directors and writers that are, are not just white men, <laughs> But we are getting to see more of that in fiction. And we're finally like in this moment that's really delightful where we're like, Stephen King is not the only one writing horror dot dot dot. Uh, and that yeah. that to me is one of the most interesting parts about what's happening right now in, in horror literature. And Greedy Hendrix is, albeit not the most diverse pick of all of the current horror writers, but he's certainly an interesting horror writer given this kind of like, new sudden burst of a whole bunch of different like writers all popping up and they're all kind of talking about similar issues right now like this book joins Stephen Grant Jones discussion of the larger discussion of final girls that was started a couple of years ago by a book that they both reference uh i think it's just called final girl so it's this has been a thing this conversation about final girls is an ongoing open conversation in books right now and that's fascinating 
And we will be doing an episode on, on Stephen Graham Jones's My Heart is a Chainsaw to, to see how these two texts that are coming out pretty much at the same time, but with very different perspectives. Did they come out in the same month? Not the same month, but they came out a month apart from each other. So Final Girl Support Group came out in July, and then the very next month of 2021 um, in August... Stephen Graham Jones, My Heart is a Chainsaw Drops. And part of the reason we're doing Grady Hendrix is that uh, he he falls into that, that sweet spot that has, from the start, defined the, the thing that both Anthony and I really, really like, and that is horror comedy. Although I will tell you something really interesting. I had a conversation with my class because they were reading Southern... Okay, so apparently none of his titles I can pronounce correctly. Um, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. And I made a comment to my students about it being comedy. And they were like, it is? And I was like, is that a, are you asking? And they were like, we didn't think it was funny. And I was like, it's not funny. Ha ha. And so then we had to have a discussion. And so that was a really uh, illuminating conversation to realize that, like, how I'm defining horror comedy at least when it comes to Hendrix is very different than how other people apparently define comedy. And I think maybe it's because the further you go in Grady Hendrix's uh, lineup of books, the less of horror, explicitly horror and comedy they both are. Like this book, which I will get into a full, dis- a full discussion of properly in a moment, but this book is probably the least comedic of anything he's ever mm-hmm. written to date and it's an absolute turn in terms of his writing maturity from i mean just thinking about where he came from with horror store his that his very first novel about um what if ikea was evil and i like that book but it is it is very straightforward right like it's very simplistic and and not in a bad way but in a like like you said it's not as mature because he basically takes all the things you expect to see I mean, down to, like, the types of torture. Um, and it's like, I'm going to put them in here, but I'm going to put them in here with this sort of tongue-in-cheek. And so I think you're right. Maybe maybe I, a better phrase of, or a better way of thinking about Hendrix is not through the lens of comedy, so much as just meta-narrative. Which, it's hard to have something that's yeah. meta-narrative that is in the least a little tongue-in-cheek, but tongue-in-cheek is not necessarily the same as, as comedy. Certainly not the same as horror film comedy. Uh, which is mm-hmm. not really manageable, right? You can't really do the the shticky type stuff successfully in literature, which is why I think students probably don't read it as, as funny in the same way that like Shaun of the Dead or Happy Death Day is funny. Yeah, when in reality they're doing, they're playing with a lot of the same things, but just that difference in medium does not allow, uh, maybe I guess the comic bits yeah. to read as explicitly bits. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to try something new, which I'm really excited about. Um, And that is that just in case it's been a little bit since you've read this book, or in case you're using this to kind of judge whether or not you want to read this book, listening to this episode, we're going to do, and by we, I mean Anthony, Anthony is going to give us a plot summary just to kind of remind you of some of the highlights or to let you know uh, the things that that he thinks are going to be important for you to remember before we start our conversation as we traditionally do. So, Anthony. Well, the Final Girl support group is about Lynette, who is a real-life final girl who survived a massacre 22 years ago and it has permanently traumatized her. But don't worry, she's not alone. 
For more than a decade, she's been meeting with other actual final girls and a therapist in a support group for those who have survived the unthinkable. Lynette lived through a situation dubbed the Silent Night Slayings by the media, and she's in the support group with Adrian, a camp counselor who survived a killer who claimed he was seeking revenge for a non-existent son, Marilyn, who was attacked by bloodthirsty cannibals, Danny, whose brother Nick escaped from a mental asylum on Halloween and slaughtered anyone who stood between him and his sister, Julia, who was left a final girl after her boyfriend and one of his friends decided to turn her into a final girl, and Heather, who's had to face a mysterious dream killer. Lynette is barely hanging on, and the others are not much better. The support group is one of the only things that can convince Lynette to leave the safety of her apartment. However, Lynette's worst fears are realized when Adrian is found murdered in her home. Lynette is certain that someone is out to finish the work that their respective killers failed at, to kill all final girls once and for all. Hey, oh, that was a lovely, like, spoiler-free one. And now we can just <laughs> spoiler everything as we talk moving forward. Uh, I think what was particularly lovely about that plot summary is the reminder of of the who's in the support group, right? Um, and what yeah. films they are, are very clearly referencing or connecting to. Where the comedy comes from for me, right, is that, you know, there are these references to things that I know, oh, yeah, this is actually, you know, for example, Heather and the Dream King is very clearly Nightmare on Elm Street because, hello, dreams, but also the character's name is Heather. But can we go through and just kind right. of, like, talk about which what each one of them is supposed to correspond to the real-life uh, franchise? yeah. So we've already started with Heather, so I guess we can just go in reverse order yes. then. So next up, we've got Julia, who's the final girl whose boyfriend and her friend decide to turn her into a final girl, which is pretty explicitly a reference to Scream. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the franchise for them is even called Stab, it's right? It's called Stab. Which is yeah. the name of the fake movie in the Scream franchise. So that's a lovely little detail that Hendrix has put in there for us. Uh, we've got Danny, who is uh, the one who's escaping a Halloween killer. Yeah. Um, so I wonder which possible Halloween yeah. franchise they could be Anthony. referring to. Uh, <laughs> then you've got Marilyn, who is attacked by cannibals, which is I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, there's multiple references to her being from Texas, um, and the title of the made-up slains in the book panhandle meat hook yeah thank you panhandle meat hook so again another pretty clear reference then we've got um adrian who is the camp counselor who was killed in killings very similar to the friday the 13th killings and then of course we've got lynette who was the one that this is the franchise that the Silent Night Slayings that I personally knew the least about. Originally, I thought it was a reference to um, Black Christmas. Yeah, I kept trying to make it fit with Black Christmas, and it kept obviously not fitting. Yeah, because I was like, "This is there. Where are the sororities? Right. Why is she in high school? Right. Uh, what's going on?" So it's actually a reference to a different sla- Christmas theme slasher, Silent Night. 
Deadly Night, which is about an orphan who's raised by nuns who grows up to be a killer toy Santa Claus. And Hendrick talks about how he knew he wanted to do this one because he wanted to have a killer Santa Claus. Uh, and, I, you know, pretty good reason. And you earlier said, and I still very much agree with you, that, you know, of, of Hendrix's book, this is the least, like, ha-ha funny, but where the humor comes in is in all of these Easter eggs, right? There's a char- there's a brief reference to people whose last names are names of, of well-known horror yeah. writers, or at least his contemporaries. You know, Tremblay's last name is used at least once. Graham Jones's name is in there once. A couple references to King, obviously, in here. And then just, like, a plethora of of other horror franchises get little name drops. Like, Black Christmas is referenced. There's some, like, weird ones about, like, those, yes. like, trolley kind of horror movies and the references to Gnome Coming in this novel. And so, so he's just, like, given us a, anyone who knows even just a little bit about horror, no matter your knowledge, because he, Hendrix himself, clearly has done so much research and knows so much about horror he's able to be like it doesn't matter if you get all of them you'll at least get one of them right so before we get into the scholarship for today which is very unsurprisingly gonna be about the final girl as anthony said when i said that was what we were going to be talking about uh he was like we could do something else but that would be a decision it would be a decision (laughs) and so yeah we're we're doing final girl we're going to talk about that in a second but before we get there i want to to make clear one of the really interesting aspects of this of this book and that is that in this world what Hendrix is suggesting is that there are these real life killings that are happening and then people are excited about that and they're franchising it right which he could have just had a story that was like about all of the fictional characters getting together and being like, no, in my franchise, we did this. But instead he's saying, no, actually, I want this to be that these are actual people in the real world, that the killings are happening in the real world, and then it's just being sensationalized, which, to be perfectly honest, is not that much different from true crime podcasts, um, true crime documentaries. And we we don't do, oftentimes we don't do... um, like, here is the explicit characters that we are basing this story off of, but we've talked a lot about horror's tendency to do the based on, on true events, inspired yeah. by true events. Everything from, like, The Strangers, which was just, like, one time there were some B&Es happening, to the Conjuring franchise, right, where we're having the Warren family who are talking about actual cases that they went on. So this is not a an un- realistic phenomenon in fact this is a very real one but it's a really creative way to do this book it's very similar and more it feels like a just a fleshed out version of Wes Craven's new nightmare and the idea that the it it is the franchise that is so scary uh uh, this what happens once this once someone has become a part of something that elevates them to this high status but it's also about horrifying, grisly murders. Uh, And Hendrix himself references this new Nightmare Connection several times in interviews outside and just talking about how he was like, that was a huge inspiration for this book. And also he references it explicitly in the text. One of the chapter titles is is New Nightmare um, in here. So it's like clearly that is a text that was on his mind when he was creating this book. 
And he also talks at the very end in his, I think it's his acknowledgement section at the very back of the book, that one of the things that caught his attention or one of the sources of inspiration had to do with uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. So when Psycho came out, Hitchcock was able to do several things that hopefully we wouldn't be able to get away with today, including he bought every copy he could find of Block's book Psycho so that no one who came to see the film and had a chance to read the book. Hendrix also talks about the fact that Hitchcock also bought the rights to someone's life story. And so, you know, we have this actual historical precedent of this happening. Um, and again, you know, Hitchcock, no matter how lovely of films he made, was not a very good human being. So it's really not surprising he did some of the things he did. But I think that's one of the things, to go back to your point of like, make like new nightmare the scariest thing is the franchise i think that's what makes this book so fundamentally disturbing because it's saying e any of us and mm -hmm. all of us are products or can potentially be products in a world that believes that everything is for sale it's, it's that combined with the uh usurping of the classic idea that all media um rests on which is that once it's over it's over and then like Everything is, you, most of the time you like to wrap it up and we Hollywood loves to put a, like, a little good happy ending on it. And this says, okay, so what happened, but what happens next? Why, if everything we've just watched previously has been horrifying and bad, why wouldn't what happens next also be horrifying and bad? And this book is like, well, it is. It, it is bad. <laughs> and I think, to go back to, to what you were saying about Wes Craven, I think Wes Craven is perhaps one of the best in terms of a franchise in, in acknowledging this, because in a lot of the other franchises, either because there's not a continuous final girl or there is, but each film like is ignoring the previous film. It's, it's not there. The subsequent films in a franchise are not really about trauma, but both scream mm -hmm. and nightmare and Elm street are about trauma. They're about the trauma of living, which is just as horrific as the trauma of having been murdered. Uh, and so I think you're absolutely correct that this allows us to explore a really important question and, and to go to something that slashers are not really interested in, right? Slashers are interested in, in destroying bodies. Um, they are not really interested in trauma as a concept. Yeah, Lynette has a great line in this book where she's talking about how she kind of like had to, she had to stop watching adrian's films at one point because like 20 minutes in because they weren't focusing any times on the victims they were merely just body bags to be killed and gutted moving on through the rest of the killings and i thought that well maybe is one of the, the quieter moments because not not technically a lot happening you're just reading lynette's thoughts but i think it's it speaks to a real theme of this book is like why do we not why don't we care about victims yes why do or or perhaps set more sad why do we only care about victims when they're dying or already dead none of the events before or after it's only that one moment yes and this is a question that other horror people have been wrestling with um joss whedon and all of his grossness um <laughs> and and drew goddard when they created the cabin in the woods mm -hmm. they one of the questions they were asking themselves was why do we keep repeating this ritual, this formula? Why do we keep enacting the same killing of the same types of people again and again and again? And of mm -hmm. course, you know, in Cabin in the Woods, it has to do with a, a shadowy underworld organization. Uh, right. But, but it is something that I, I think Hendrix is touching on. And I, 
Hendrix would never do the shadowy organization, at least not in this book, because it doesn't necessarily, well, it doesn't necessarily fit the vibe of, of this, of this novel. I think it would feel untruthful. Yes. So in, in the shadowy underworld, right, there's a, we can place the blame on, on these ancient powers, right? And and we, we are all just trying to survive and appease them. And that is an interesting angle, but Hendrix, you're right, is, is saying, no, no, we are the problem. 100% it's us. Just remember that it's us. Because that one tries to like absolve, kind of absolve some of the responsibility until base, until kind of the very end when it does some like, oh no, maybe, oh, it was kind of their faults and this is all bad. But this one all the whole time is just like, no, no, no. Everyone is responsible for their own actions all the time. Yes. Everyone's responsible. And if we consume, you know, I always think about like, why zombies works is such a, a powerful metaphor, right? And it's because all of us are consumers and many of us are mindless consumers and there are no zombies in Hendrix's book, but that's it. That is his argument, right? Is that consumers are just as responsible in this world as the person wielding the knife, right? Because we are every time saying, pick that knife back up. Um, and I think that's just, that might be one of the reasons why this book doesn't read as, as, comedic as his earlier ones because he's increasingly becoming a disaffirmative author you know in horror store it's like oh but it's this creeper don't Uh worry we'll destroy the creeper and you know ikea and then starting with uh we sold our souls and moving onward then increasingly there have been like well maybe the problem's a little bit us or the Mm -hmm. system or or culture but then by the time we get to this one he's not saying maybe He's just saying it is, right? Yeah. In Southern Book Club Guide, in this one, he was like, no, the problem is the culture we've created that allows monsters to exist like this. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. I briefly, let's go in and let's just like, I think you're going to reference the classic Final Girl scholarship, uh, Clover. So yeah. let, let's briefly just, I think, bring Clover in. This is a good moment for, for her to speak. She's talking, because she, these are... I think she would be fit right into this conversation we're having right now. Oh, 100%. So Carol J. Clover wrote a book called Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Mm -hmm. Film. I got that book for uh, one of my parents for Christmas one time. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. I'm glad that your parents have accepted. I came out as a horror fan and they accepted me. Yeah. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, my mom's still a little sad, but also she started being like, no... It's okay now. Um, So this book originally came out in 1992, uh, and it's been a a really foundational text in horror studies because she was she was publishing a book length project on horror scholarship back before that was even something people thought was something we needed. And she has an entire chapter that's on slasher films specifically, and the chapter is called her body himself, because she's going to be talking a lot about gender. She begins this chapter, though, I think it's funny, by saying, at the bottom of the horror heap lies the slasher (laughs) film. (laughs) And, you know, she's talking about, like, she talks about the various components of a slasher film. And she talks about victims, and she talks about the terrible place. Uh, She talks about weapons. She talks about the killer. But she has a whole section on the term that she coined, that is Final Girl. She says, the image of the distressed female most likely to linger in memory is the image of the one who did not die, the survivor or final girl. 
she is the one who encounters the mutilated bodies of her friends and perceives the full extent of the preceding horror and of her own peril, who is chased, cornered, wounded, whom we see scream, stagger, fall, rise, and scream again. She is abject terror personified. If her friends knew they were about to die only seconds before the event, the final girl lives with the knowledge for long minutes or hours. She alone looks death in the face, but she alone also finds the strength either to stay the killer long enough to be rescued, which is one type of ending she says happens, or to kill him herself, which is the second option um, for slasher film endings. Okay, so the final girl. She says, first and foremost, it's someone who survives, but I like that phrase of it is terror abject personified because that's really important. Then she talks about the fact that so we have this female hero, but the slasher films, which she's primarily uh-huh. writing about, are very clearly meant for a male audience. And so she says, so how are we supposed to wrestle with this fact that that the person that we are rooting for, the I, for male audiences, is a female character? And this is where it starts to get really interesting. And this is where I feel like Hendrix really did his research. She, she's asking, like, but if viewers can identify across gender lines, and if the root experience of horror is sex blind, are the screen sexes not interchangeable? Why are there not more and better female killers? And why, in light of the maleness of the majority audience, are there not more Pauls as well as Paulines? And so her argument is, is because the final girl does something really, really interesting. And that is that the final girl She says the gender of the final girl is likewise compromised from the outset by her masculine interests, her inevitable sexual reluctance, her apartness from other girls, sometimes her name. At the level of the cinematic apparatus, her unfemininity is signaled clearly by her exercise of the active investigating gaze normally reserved for males and punished in females when they assume it themselves. Tentatively at first and then aggressively, the final girl looks for the killer, even tracking him to his forest hut or his underground labyrinth, and then at him, therewith bringing him often for the first time into our vision as well. And so she talks about the fact that there's this way in which the final girl has this sort of shared masculinity because, you know, there's all these like phallic representations, but also there's a shared femininity because of this moment of, and she's going to go real uh, Freudian, the castration, literal or symbolic, of the killer at her hands. Because remember that Freud said that, you know, women are really sad that we don't have phalluses, phalli, phallic. I don't know what's plural for phallus. Phalluses? Penises. Penises. We don't have peni. Peni. We don't have peni. <laughs> and so, you know, that that is the thing that makes us really sad. Um, <laughs> so... She goes further and she says the final girl is on reflection, a congenial double for the adolescent male, feminine enough to act out in a gratifying way, a way unapproved for adult males, the terrors and masochistic pleasures of the underlying fantasy, but not so feminine as to disturb the structures of male competence and sexuality. Mm -hmm. So essentially men can identify with her and be like, oh, it's okay that she's scared because she's a woman, but I'm going to kind of uh, follow her anyway. But then... She says something else, but I want to pause there because there's one other really, really important thing that will set us up for the conclusion. But let's just pause there. So what caught your attention in all of that about the final girl? I guess the discussion of the masculine feminine and most of the, the, the rooting of, I mean, most of the characters, all of the characters in here are, they go with the clear feminine route. There are a couple notable exceptions, which... 
even kind of acknowledges Julia Campbell, a reference to Bruce Campbell, one of the few yeah. final guys, yes. I guess, or final girl, final girl in the first right. one. Then he transitions to more of that, like, man in the second one to be a final guy. Or I would even say yeah. by the second one, he's just a hero, right? Like he's, he's lost that essence of the, the final girl. So I thought that was a clever, it's a, it was a, it was a funny reference to be able to include that in. Clearly Hendrix is thinking clearly about this. And I think it's really close. It's so clear, like throughout the book, he references other scholarship in the little sections. And you hear, throughout, when you were reading some of those phrases, you're like, there's absolutely no way that he didn't include some of that. Like er, early on, there's just he references um, this academic person who was just like talking about who was also talking about the gender issues in in this in these slasher films as well. I really liked the ephemera uh, that he included, you know, between chapters where it was a snippet from a made-up scholar, a snippet from a news article. Uh, or a file, or or whatever it might be. I thought I've yeah. I'm always a big fan of that uh, of like that multi-modal approach. Um, that was one of the things I really liked about uh, Headful of Ghosts as well. Yeah, that Agreed. yeah. I just like it when there's imaginary documents from this imaginary world. And I loved it because it was one of so much of the novel is through Lynette's like POV that you do get sucked into her perception of the world, which Hendrix reminds you constantly through some of those documents is not an entirely accurate reading of what's going on. Like particularly when you're referencing, like when you get to read the news articles where you've just heard Lynette tell her story for like a hundred pages, but then you're like, wait a second, everything she just said was only a half truth and this is what she's thinking in her mind and you're and it just gives you a broader picture into what kind of a world what trauma what the trauma has done to Lynette's mind and how it is affecting her perception of reality in the world and I, agree, I like just love that reading her therapist's assessment of the whole situation where it completely reframes every single thing that Lynette has previously established to you as the reader it's a good twist without even really being it's it's not even a twist because it doesn't change any of the narrative it's just a that wasn't quite the full truth right this is an unreliable narrator and i think we all know that she's an unreliable narrator about the time that she's talking to her plant (laughs) right it's not very far Mm -hmm. in that you're like i bet she's a little unhinged but i think that there's a moment in the narrative that is then supported by the ephemera that, that really cements that. And that's when she's like, oh, we come to group every time because Heathers can't survive without us. And then they were all like, no, Lynette, we come to group for you. You're the one we're most worried about. And, you know, and then she dismisses it. But we get to see, like you said, through the ephemera, that that's, that is actually very true. Um, and, and I think it's very it's a very creative and clever way to show us the degree to which our our narrator is unreliable and not unreliable because she's being intentionally devious, but because trauma has colored everything in such a profound way. And there's a lot like, so like so that she's just very ashamed of. And so, and so rather than like dealing with it head on, it's uh, just compartmentalize and move on, which doesn't, completely remove the situation but it does 
certainly make it easier for her to go on with her day, even if it is a day in pain, mostly. One of the things that's interesting about this this book, uh, and I think that your earlier reference to New Nightmare is really apt in this case, is that part of this book is asking us to consider, is there ever a moment that a final girl can become a woman, right, as opposed to a girl? And, and what does that mean in terms of claiming agency, right? And what does that mean in terms of, of becoming the, the primary character in your own narrative, as opposed to, you know, the survivor of someone else's. And we see glimpses of that, but we also, of course, are seeing that everyone is stunted uh, by, by their trauma. But to go back to Clover, right? So Clover's part of Clover's argument is, is that it may seem on the surface, like it's really odd to have female main characters or female survivors besides our killer in these, in these slasher texts. But really Mm -hmm. she's saying it's not that surprising because what the final girl is doing is that she's safe enough for people to, for the male audience to be like, Oh, well, she's not overly feminine. So I don't have to worry about that. So I can identify with Mm -hmm. her, but it's also okay that she's screaming and scared because she's, she's a woman, right. As opposed to a man. And this is one of the areas that I don't think Hendricks um, is trying to, to do much subversion, right? He's presenting us with pretty traditional final girls. Uh, you know, we have a yeah. lesbian. So any, so that is, you know, and, and lesbianism is so often coded through the male gaze anyway, right? And we yeah. never see them together. So it's never truly homoerotic. It's just a female love interest. Um, we have multiple characters that have very, masculine names there are multiple times that lynette is just shortened to lynn uh very intentionally adrian danny yes even in the case of marilyn who is set up to be you know we we learn that she was in on the beauty pageant circuit and she's married she's been married a couple of times we never see her husband we never see her interacting as a wife uh we just see her drinking and and being wealthy yeah. so all of the sort of things that these characters are doing is coded as, as the Clover's definition of the quote safe space that is the final girl, because she's not feminine, but she's also not so masculine that you're like, you know, suck it up soldier. It's, it takes the approach that the final girl means really means outsider because they can never be on the inside of any group. They can, they're not, they're not clearly in line with any gender binary. They're not clearly accepted into any other groups. And because particularly in this group, this group talks about how their trauma has further isolated them, not only because of the event itself, but because of how their trauma has been replicated from profit and mass produced and distributed on the world that for only further elevated but isolated them and creates them as they're not really they're just outsiders in this book and it's really it's exploring that idea so the last couple of things that i want to bring in about clover because what i like about clover is that she's acknowledging in this chapter that it's really weird and complicated because on the one hand shouldn't it be a a sign of, of a subversive text or a subversive trend if our main characters are always female, if the male audience is always supposed to identify in a female 
with from a female perspective and then it's like yeah but only a little but also a lot right and so she's really wrestling with this so she talks about the fact that mm. what's interesting about the final girl is that the final girl becomes her own savior she becomes a hero and the moment that she becomes a hero is the moment that the male viewer gives up the last pretense of male identification abject terror may still be gendered feminine but the willingness of one immensely popular current genre to represent the hero as an anatomical female would seem to suggest that at least one of the traditional marks of heroism, triumphant self-rescue, is no longer strictly gendered masculine. And then she ends the chapter by saying, does this mean that this is a subversive genre? And she's like, probably not as much as we want it to be, but is this something we need to continue thinking about for a very long time? Absolutely. And of course, you know, she's writing this in 92. It's 2021. We are still thinking about these issues. So obviously she's very correct there. But it's that last statement, right, about the journey or the transformation of the final girl that I think is really important. And it's important in part because I, I think this is where we get to my one issue with Hendrix, and that is I don't think he entirely stuck the landing. And I think the landing is for the final girl, one of the most important parts that has to be stuck really well uh, for it to be subversive. And I just don't think it was quite there. Yeah, I I think it's because there's that weird... So much of the novel is establishing all of these people as being completely outside, isolated, and alone, and not trusting of each yes. other. And then... And so much of this novel is in that place, which I think is a very interesting place because it leads to a lot of, these are all clearly dysfunctional people. Yes. Um, dysfunction in the, in the sense that they are functioning around pain rather. Um, and so it leads to a lot of really, really amusing and dark interactions where they're just like exposing the worst of each other constantly. And so, but then the final, in the final part of the novel, you see, it is a unique thing in that all of these final girls are coming together and having to work together to kind of take down these unconventional killers, which is something new, but you don't ever really get that transition where they, where either they're clearly transitioning into something larger than themselves in this group and coming together to no longer, to yes, they're outsiders, but they're insiders together, so anything... I, and I think it's because there is that mishmash because where which this is a disaffirmative text, but the trajectory of a final girl is to go on a journey of self-actualization. And so there's this tension between Hendrick's clear desire to want to actualize all of the final girls and give them the agency and give them that, if not happy ending, uh, their journey needs to kind of come to a high point. But also his him saying that the franchise and this idea that we keep going back to these stories is fundamentally kind of bad and kind of scary that we keep doing this. And yet then it wraps up in the same way as everything else. So there's like that tension between the central theme and the central uh, journey of the final girl that is not ever really able to be properly, I think, I, I don't know. It's not, they don't ever quite fit at the, in the ending. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure what it would take to achieve that. No. Because one of the things that is is 
frustrating but also fantastic about the book is that Lynette is a is a hot mess and yeah. and she's not going to stop being one. And it would be so inauthentic to everything that that Hendrix is setting up and to the character if at the end she was like, "But now I'm just going to be awesome and I'm going to push past my trauma." Because that that would be wrong, right? That would be an incorrect way to do it. And so Lynette until the very final moments, she's still like, "I don't really want to do this." I guess I kind of have to. I'm not really pleased, but also I might lay down and die a little. So, you know, there, there, that, that felt to me very authentic. And you're also right that like we have a dysfunctional family and yeah. just like many families where you're like, why do you still interact with them? If you, all you do is just ask them for money or that all they do is just ask you for money. And it's because like, because we're family, the, the dysfunctionality of the support group was fantastic. And so it would have been super strange if at the end they had been like, you know, we are Captain Planet together. When we come together, we can create magic and, you know, literal or figurative. It would have been really weird if it had become some sort of like montage of teamwork. Mm-hmm. Um, because even when Danny is, is like taking one for the, the team, um, there at the end, she's, she's still not really doing it in like this like empowered way. It's more like, okay, well, I didn't want to stay alive really anyway. And also we just have to, this is what we have to do. This is our fate. We have no choice. So I don't know how he would have resolved it. Right. But, but there is that tension at work. And I think it's, it's exacerbated by the proportion of the narrative, right? So much of this book is needing to set up Lynette's story. By the time we got to this final climactic moment at the camp and, and her realizing that it was stuff and all that, um, it's, it's, there's, there wasn't enough book left. It's only like the, the ending, which is a, technically a lot happens because it's like, they all have to go to the camp. They realize Sky and Steph were working together. They then have to defeat both of them separately in different things. And then they, and then they, once they do defeat them, then we also go to them to find out what has happened to all of them in their lives. And all of this is about 40 pages which is 40 pages of uh, a book that's 340 pages. So 300 pages is set kind of like messing with the world and then 40 pages to the conclusion, which is, I I, I think I, I agree with you. It's just, I think maybe it could have happened if it was over a slightly long, took maybe a, a bit more time to just develop. And, you know, admittedly, Hendrix is like, is making the argument kind of throughout this narrative that the least important things to us should be the deaths and the killings and the most important parts should be the characters. But be that though it may, we could have spent some of that last time still having character development or I I don't know. I don't, again, I'm not sure what would have needed to happen. I'm not sure how to do it. I just know that it didn't quite work. And if this, the ending was also something that was like, really difficult for Hendrix. He's talked about in in several interviews about how he originally wrote this book um, back in around 2014-ish, and he gave it to his agent, and his agent said, we can't sell this. No. And so he was like, okay, all right, put it away. And then COVID came around. He was isolated in his home, and he was like, and his agent was like, you got anything for me? And he was like, I got this book for you. Um, And they're like, okay. And he was like, because he had, and he had been working on it. He rewrote the ending, the last half. He completely scrapped what he had had originally and rewrote the entire ending. So clearly he knew that that ending was important and he had been really trying to do it. 
And it, it most, again, I, we may have come off a little too negative here. It still mostly works. It's like, it's, it gets through the end of the slasher. It's just a bit abrupt, I think. And a, a bit abrupt in wrapping up the themes and as well as the narrative, I think, that had been the, throughout the rest of the book, kind of really, really seamlessly been weaving in and out of each other and working really well. And I, you know, you and I talked about this before um, we started recording a couple of days ago, actually, that this is, this is his best book. And, and this oh, is coming yeah. from someone who, who we've not disliked any of his books. This is his most complex. It's his most mature. It's, it's interesting to me. And I know some people, I've, I've heard some people articulate that they have problems with this, but I think it's just interesting that he's continuing to, all of his books have been from a main character who's female. And I think that this one is perhaps maybe because of the nature of the final girl, but is perhaps his most realized or actualized character, uh, followed by the main character in Southern Book Club. Southern, yeah, for sure. An another one of those brilliant, horrifying moments I thought was the all of the stuff with Lynette's interactions with the police officer, with yes. which was just yet another one of those really good nods to like creepy elements that are in all slashers that maybe necessary aren't necessarily explicitly acknowledged for how yeah, creepy it, they that, are the weird like paternal love interest yeah where yeah where you're like oh yeah it is really creepy how much like in the slasher movies like it's always like these like middle-aged dad characters who are the ones who are paired with the with the women. And then it was interesting to see Lynette, who is now no longer that young, uh, that that same young girl that she was when she first met the police officer, be forced to interact with him again. Yeah. And the simultaneous regression that she felt and she hates ha yeah. what's happening. But then they also like how their relationship has changed. And I thought yes. it was brilliant, led to some really inter amazing interactions. Yes. And I did love at the end when she was just, when he was like, let's write that book. And she was like, I lied to you and just walks away. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct that, that it was these like small moments within the big narrative that, that were so powerful and that really illustrate, like if you can communicate that much in these small moments, uh, it's just a sign of, of being a phenomenal writer. But to go back to the ending, because yeah. although you are correct that perhaps we, we sounded more harsh than we meant to, um, you know, because obviously it didn't stop us from reading it, didn't stop us from liking it. My my concern has to go back to, to what you accurately said, which is the disconnect or the tension that's happening between some of the affirmative and disaffirmative elements there at the end. And it has to do specifically with the Steph-Sky relationship. So yeah, I was excited that it wasn't that it didn't end up being the therapist because yeah you know he did a good job with that sort of red herring i also thought having it be sky was really interesting because there we saw lynette trust him and so we saw that reminder that even if you've been in this situation even if you're the most observant person you think you can be you still can make mistakes right so i thought that was very interesting and I liked the fact that we also had a female killer in there and the sort of like, I'm going to be the next gen version, right? That's very Scream-esque to me. But the very end of the book, which I really wanted to like, but I, again, I just didn't feel like it stuck the landing. The very, very end. I, I thought it was amazing that they went to the prison and were like, hey, it's time to have our final support meeting, final girl support group meeting, because you are a final girl too, to stuff in prison. My problem with that was, though, 
that there was this, this statement and this sort of implication explicitly stated but also implied that she had been groomed by Sky, right? I mean, it even says, like, that she'd been groomed by him. He was older and he had kind of, he had found her file and he had been manipulating her. It, there's a, Lynette explicitly said, like, says, like, calls her out as, like, you were this, you thought you were the subject, but you were really just an object. Yes. And I had a problem with that because I think it would have been more interesting to have it be that she, she was the subject. She was the killer. She had groomed Sky. Uh, she's the one that had contacted him, all that stuff. And then say, but nevertheless, you are a final girl because even though this one male character may not have manipulated you, you live in the society that we live in where women, regardless of whether or not you think you have a sense of agency, you really don't. We are always... Um, treated as objects within a, the hegemonic sort of dominant society, that would have been more interesting to me because then it would have been, you were not either a monster or a final girl, right? It would have been, you can be both because that's the world that has been created for us. Yeah, I think, I, I think you're, this is great because it just, Whereas throughout the whole novel, he had been complicating the relationship between the monster and the final girl. In the end, he then goes back to that very stringent uh, separation between the monsters and the final girls, which kind of counteracts everything that we have read thus far. Is I, I kind of thought that the whole point of it was, of this book was like, look at the, we're kind of embracing and like reading about the monstrous elements of some of these final girls and how it has bad implications for them and the, and the, their interactions with the rest of the world. But that doesn't mean they're, that they're any lesser, even if you have these monstrous tendencies. But then in the end, it's like, no, banish the monster. We can't, we can't, we got to get away from that. Uh, world's good. We're all final girls. Kumbaya. And I think, unfortunately... This is one of those places where, where it's doing a sort of disservice to this larger concept of, of female monstrosity, right? Because going back as far as, like, Medusa is a really good example. She has been reappropriated as this, like, feminist icon. Um, or she's this ugly, grotesque monster. Mm -hmm. And she's either or, right? And, and that's just the way it is. And you get to pick. Uh, instead of it being like, but can't she be both? Can't she be amazing because she's a monster, but also horrible because she's she's not a monster, right? Like, can't we just make it more complicated? And and I think this is the one area where Hendrix, and I don't want to say it's because he's a, a male author writing a female character, because I, I don't really believe in that idea that that's, that's why characters are limited. But I do think this is his one, like, writer character flaw, is that I'm thinking back to all of his main characters, and there's we just need... Like, 10% more. Just 10% more complication to the character for us to really be in that space that I think he wants us to be and the space that he takes us so close to being. Yeah, because this is a similar complaint that we had kind of had about Southern, which is that every it's so simplistic in terms of, like, well, its views of the gender binary. It's that, oh, the, all of the all of the women are very strong and good and every single man is evil and bad and not in a way where it's like in subtle ways where we're examining the extent that the patriarchy has had on these people and how 
no one can truly be happy under the patriarchy. It's no, it's just men are bad and women in this in this novel are very good. Right. And not just good, but victims. Uh, right, 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 right. And and I think this novel for 90% of it is complicating that relationship and and very effectively complicating it. And then in the only then in the last like 10%, it kind of like I guess is on is unable to bring all of that complications to satisfying conclusions, which I think makes sense given just the amount of ideas and the, uh, the ideas that are at play in this novel. But it is it does lead to a a bit of an underwhelming conclusion to a novel that had been so strong. The good news is is that if you liked this book, Hendrix is apparently like stepped up his his writing timeline he's already got his next book announced and i'm personally rather delighted by the title uh it is it's called how to sell a haunted house and it's coming out next july it's a uh, uh, july of 2022 so he had a book in july of 2021 and he's gonna have a book for you next year he's like the, the marvel cinematic universe of horror writers they're just Yay. pumping one out every year <laughs> and i hope that he will continue one of my favorite things about him which is that he plays with form as much as content uh you know either they look like ikea magazines or vhs tapes or in this case all the ephemera so there's gonna be so much that to look forward to in yeah. terms of hendrix in the future but if you're listening to this podcast there's also much to look forward to because our next episode is going to be on the 2010 remake of the Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I have never seen this one before. I love Nightmare. I I have no idea what I'm going to think of this remake. I know what you're going to think. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited for that conversation so that I can tell you I told you I knew what you were going to think. Um, but I'm going to keep that secret, keep that safe <laughs> until then so as to not color your reading. But this will be bringing to a conclusion our examination of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, which is just terribly exciting and sad, but also terribly exciting because it's we've been doing this for quite some time. So if you haven't watched the 20 cent film you should watch it just so that you understand what we're talking about at the very least and you should listen to all our episodes right uh, you should definitely in the meantime you should definitely listen to all of our episodes feel free to follow us on social media our links are in the description of this podcast thank you for listening to our nightmares and have a spooktacular day <laughs>